0: Welcome to another episode of Talking About PHI, featuring me, Kat Vahey, and Sue Chamberlain. Together, we have a great conversation about what's new in healthcare and what you need to know about. So let's start talking about PHI. HHS released a notice of proposed rulemaking for HIPAA revisions that was supposed to run alongside the 21st Century Cures Act. However, there are actually quite a few items that contradict the Cures Act. Join us as Jan McDavid runs down the list of contradictions and enlightens us all. Welcome, welcome back to another episode of Talking About PHI. Again, I'm Kat, and uh, Sue's here, and we're going to talk to the owner of McDavid Law, Jan McDavid. Jan, tell us a little bit about yourself and what makes you so passionate about law in the healthcare space.
1: Well, sure. I have been in health privacy law for more than 20 years. I was around when HIPAA first uh, was passed, and the regulations since then, and had very active roles in trying to make HHS realize what it was they were regulating, because when they first issued HIPAA rules, they had little bearing on reality. So we're back in that same point again, and that's what we want to talk about today.
2: And I'll just throw out here, Jan has been with us a couple of times on our podcast and she is very popular. So we wanted to bring her back to provide some more of
0: her phenomenal knowledge. Yeah. And, you know, Jan's being really modest. She really works a lot in the healthcare ROI space. And I'm telling you the amount of people that tap Jan on the shoulder for information is a lot because she was back with the team um, in, in terms of HIPAA. When they were just like chipping away at the, you know, the 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 the, the wheel, the, the the stone wheel, when they were trying to just chip away at HIPAA and make it make it roll, uh, Jan was there. She would go to lobby uh, and talk to lawmakers and help them understand the process that people just don't quite get. So Jan, uh, tell us about the proposed HIPAA revision um, from your perspective. What's happening with it? Where is it going? is it going anywhere and uh, we'll just take it from there. And I know Sue's got a lot of great questions for you.
1: Okay, great. Um, In 2020, the Department of Health and Human Services, HHS released a what's called Notice of Proposed Rulemaking or NPRM. That NPRM was made public and they asked for comments from anyone who had concerns. So certainly everyone in the ROI space, I would hope commented and a comment can be you know 20 pages long but commented with their concerns about the unintended consequences because they had such a drastic change in how roi operations would have to work that we feel that providers would have to hire more staff for jobs that they have not filled in many years given that they outsourced it to business associates so that is the the Top of mind, I think, concern for providers in that it would require new people, new salaries, things that were unbudgeted and a lot of training. So you want me to just start listing some of the issues?
2: Absolutely.
1: Okay, first, the NPRM assumed that any additional cost would be borne by the covered entity, so by the providers through contracts with business associates. So that's really a faulty assumption. Even if business associates are told to add these other duties to their existing duties, someone has to pay for them to then be medically trained to deal with patients because there is some one-on-one patient contact contemplated by the rule that we know most provider staffs now can't add to their jobs. So I think from the get go, HHS was looking at this in a, in a faulty manner, it was a false assumption that they made beginning at the, at the front. So when they solicited comments, um, they also wanted people to talk about cost data and comments on individual experiences with being charged for records or obtaining them at no charge. And they said, and this is a quote, some people receive unexpectedly large bills for obtaining copies, possibly in violation of the HIPAA right of access fee limitations. Well, as you probably know, most of those allegations are made by trial attorneys who insist they have a right to receive the records at the patient rate, which is little or no charge. So they filed complaints with OCR, the department of HHS that handles this, which are pretty much nuisance complaints. And I think to some extent, OCR realizes that, but they also now realize this is a big issue. So that's why they're asking for more comments. And
2: and I will throw out that I know that there's been a lot of discussion about this coming out that uh, a question came up where an attorney gave an example where they had a bill for $42,000 for a record request. And when the patient requested it it was $6 and 50 cents. And so you have I know there's been a lot of discussion, so I'm throwing this out for you too, um, of why is there such a difference in fees? So we can kind of discuss that to make sure that everybody understands that. But I also wanna throw out that that $42,000 that they throw out there as it was so much money is a outlier it's yes. very very uncommon but it but they're trying to make legislation sometimes based upon one outlier one mistake one something that one company made instead of what the actual reality and the average cost that even trial attorneys
0: are being charged. So I'm just
2: throwing that out because I would say that
0: there are a lot of mitigating um, things as well in terms of you got to look at that, whatever that total cost was, but how many pieces of paper were there? How many additional like notes where where people had to go investigate and how much, you know what I mean? Because if they want every bit of a record and someone and it, it's associated with a lawsuit, there's a lot of data. So someone had to do a lot of work. So, you know, it, it's it's like looking at the, they're looking at one small component of a, a larger maybe activity. So, and that I, is- and, and that, does everyone know that's listening what ROI is? Because ROI means a lot of things, right? Return on investment, but we're assuming that everyone knows what ROI that we're talking about. We're talking about releasing the release of information. That's the ROI that we're connecting and talking about here.
2: And we're talking about the difference between releasing on paper and releasing electronically, which all plays a factor too. So sorry for interrupting you, Jan, keep going. (laughs) Okay,
1: I think when this was issued, well, I don't think, I know that this was intended to run alongside the 21st Century Cures Act. But as you'll see, as we talk about it today, They've actually put things in the NPRM that contradict things that are in the Cures Act. So those are the kinds of things we tried to point out to them in our comments back. The goal really was, according to HHS, was to establish a right for consumers of healthcare to obtain their own records without difficulty and at low or no cost. What they failed to notice is that patients already benefit from those practices. So, their assumption that patients are overcharged and receive those giant bills is simply wrong, but that's the premise they started with. They also talk about very low numbers of records because they always tend to have the mindset that only consumers request copies. So, you know, we know that there were millions and millions, and I can get more granular on that if we need to copies provided in the last year or for whatever period you want to discuss at absolutely no charge because those are for continuing care and for patient personal reasons. So I know in the uh, the Cyax Health LLC versus Azar case, which was decided at the end of 2020, um, it is stated that Cyax alone processes tens of millions of requests annually. So when you take the entire industry together it is you know, potentially hundreds of millions of requests. <clears throat> so we've always had to comply with HIPAA since it first came out. Most of the people who were in ROI when it first came out have either retired or are seriously considering it. <laughs> and I would say if I was in that space right now, I would probably consider that too before this becomes law, but that's my opinion. <clears throat> so aside from the basic premise of the volumes being incorrect, They don't realize that almost all patient requests are no charge already, and the ones that aren't free are charged six fifty. dollars They especially don't realize, though, about all of the others. So there was this thing that was um, thrown out there and published back in, I think, 2014 on the HHS HIPAA website that became known as the third-party directive. And that was where attorneys could have the patient say, I'm requesting it, but send it over here to this third party, which was never the intent of high tech or HIPAA. And that became a patient rate. So the SIOCS decision pretty much eliminated the third party directive. That doesn't exist as, as a thing anymore. And it's very difficult to convince attorneys of that. So they basically were creating a new right under this new law. The next problem that I see is being really, really problematic is in-person review of records. They don't say who has to conduct this in-person review, how frequently you might have to do it, can they film it, where is it going to be held, can you make your appointment for a month from now because your person who's doing this is tied up. They basically just said you have to do in-person review if requested. So the first problem is it requires doing the entire complete ROI on the chart first before you can possibly review it with the patient. Secondly, you have to put it on an, a media that's freestanding, so kept at the site or on a computer that's running like dummy software so that you can put a flash drive in it and have only that patient's records come up.
0: So someone just can't go into the EHR and like check out the stuff there. It's, it's a separate it's recommended right. that's a separate thing. Okay. Yes. And other peoples that yes. are on the system.
1: So it has to be isolated. And then it has to be either reserved or put back in the chart. And we anticipate that most most patients would say, well, just let me have that flash drive. So once it leaves your hand, you don't know what happens to it. If they drop it in the parking lot while getting in their car, you know, are they going to file a complaint later that you breached their records because they were in the parking lot? I mean, we've seen similar kinds of cases. But the last problem with that is you have to have a medically trained person to converse with the patient about things in the chart. I mean, as much as I think I know about medical records, when I get lab results, I have to look up half the numbers and what they stand for. So nobody's gonna know all of that unless they're a practitioner. So someone has to be able to explain it when the patient says, well, what is creatinine? I don't think your business associate is going to know that nor are they supposed to. That has to be a medically trained person. Um, We know that attorneys will probably come in and want to videotape it. So again there's certain issues around that that are just not addressed in this law. We don't think that anyone other than the patient or somebody involved in the patient's care should be allowed to conduct those reviews. So given that it's anticipated and we know that attorneys now demand 100% of the chart. So they're gonna request any and all records. They're gonna come in maybe with their client and sit there and argue with someone about what's in their chart. So um, that doesn't fit in the standard ROI description of what constitutes ROI.
0: Yeah, it seems like there's a whole extra step here, the the in-person review and then having um, someone who is medically trained Uh, to review and answer questions, that's like pulling someone out of a current job that they're doing to do this above and beyond, or you have to have additional people. But my assumption is that this is not happening all the time, I hope. Um, But if it's associated with attorneys, if you look at the number of attorney requests, you know, per month, per organization, it could be a lot. It could be taxing.
2: And and I'll throw out that Um, A lot of people have talked about this as being something new, but honestly, I've had people come in to review their records back in the paper days, as well as the electronic days for years and years and years. And part of it is third-party payers. That's one of the ways they like to do it as well, so that they can come in, review a record, and we have to put it on a computer that we call a kiosk. That's completely separate, but we've been doing it with patients and third-party payers, but we always had to have this very specific documentation saying that that nobody can uh, explain anything to you. You need to take any questions you may have to your physician. Not always easy because exactly what Jan was saying, the patients are constantly asking questions. They see something, what does this mean? What does this mean? And in the days of paper, we had to have somebody sit right there to make sure that they didn't stick a piece of paper down in their Mm -hmm. their briefcase, whatever. So it costs a lot of money to do that. And if somebody wants to be able to say, hey, before I pay for this much record, I want to see what ones things I actually need or if I need any at all. And if they think they can do that for free, yeah and that burden and and this is where i come back all the time because i've used administrative burden because in the olden days the federal government used to at least give us that the yeah. administrative burden portion of it but they just keep adding more and more and more administrative burden onto this so right. yeah and
1: the problem with having it mandated that they have to do this that's the kind of language that attorneys latch onto They want, they say, well, you can't refuse to let me do this. And I want to come Tuesday at two o'clock. So then you get into the whole scheduling issue of having this medically trained person, because I don't think OCR is going to let, is going to require people to do this, have them do it, and then have a second level and say, well, if you have questions, you have to come back and talk to your doctor. Mm -hmm. So just problem after problem with that approach that I think was not considered.
2: And, and Jan, I just want to throw out just before we go to the to the next um, you know, we talked even about how psyox versus Azar kind of undid the whole attorneys being able to get through the patient request, all that kind of stuff. Those requests are still coming. Mm-hmm. and now we're going to get the attorneys that are going to be requesting these kind of things saying, nope, the rules are out there, even if they may not be finalized. the rules are out there. We want to do this. Do you have any recommendations as an attorney for what some of these people, both in the hospital and the physician setting, if they start getting these letters from the attorney saying, here's a, here's the law of why you need to do this, of maybe some steps that they can take to kind of push back a little bit.
1: Well, the very first thing they should say is it's not a law yet. Um, until it is actually published as a final rule. And even then in the final rule, it will have an effective date. So it has to be effective or it can't be applied. So you first would say, well, that's not a law. It's like, if you know the speed limit is going to increase to hundred miles an hour down the road and some crazy person has introduced that and it's a a bill, but it's not yet a law. You can't have people do hundred miles an hour. And then when they get pulled over say, well, but it's a law, it's not a law yet. Hopefully, before it gets there, just like the 100 miles an hour, it will change. Um, and we, and you know, that's the purpose of all these comments. They have to, by law, sit down and read all of the comments and consider them or else just throw them out. So hopefully, they'll throw out the more onerous parts. I don't think they're going to throw out in-person review completely. I'm not that naive. But I do think they might put some walls around it. So that's what we can hope for. And I was actually going to discuss this next, so thank you for mentioning it. The NPRM, the rule that they just put out, doesn't match the SIOCS court decision. It thinks it does and they say in there one time it does, because the judge said that in writing the High Tech Act, Congress clearly knew the difference between a patient and personal rep and third parties, and that if they intended to extend it to third parties, they would have been included. And my one sentence quote from Judge Mehta is, executive agencies cannot expand laws to cover groups that were explicitly excluded under the law. So by that, he means lawyers were excluded. HIPAA was not meant to include them. And he said that he thinks Congress knew that when they issued it. So that's why now the third party directive is no longer a thing unless the NPRM reinstates it because records have always been able, I mean, sorry, patients have always been able to have their records sent to a third party, but attorneys abuse the process to attempt to get them for free. And that's what resulted in this judge's decision. So it was a big win for the ROI industry, but a lot of them didn't get the memo. So I have a couple of places from the law that I always quote back to them. I mean, from the court case that I always quote back to them as to why they can no longer get records for 650. Not that they were ever supposed to, that was another misinterpretation. Um, One thing I always say too in comments of this type is that we don't know of another industry that is either statutorily or regulatory required to give away its business records and work products to for-profit businesses. These law firms are making a fortune and they brag about it in their commercials. So we know they're making a lot of money, but they can't make as much money if they have to pay, for example, $42,000 for records. So, of course, they're going to complain about that. And it's almost like OCR wants to hear those bad stories rather than the
0: facts. You know, it would be great if, you know, you said you have a list of um statements or quotes from the PsyOx versus Azar ruling that you, I, you know, we could, we could put them on a checklist and get them to people and uh, attach it to this uh, podcast. Um, so maybe we could work on that, Jan, because I think information that's, so, so it's like when when the big case happened and, you know, you got the, the press releases out there and it was um, in your mind for like a day or two but uh you know people are overloaded with information and then it just kind of starts to degrade so maybe we can pull that together sue uh with uh, for jan and make that available for our listeners jan's kind of helped me with that in the past
2: so maybe i can pull some of that um where i've tapped her on the shoulder quite a few times for help (laughs) that's okay i have two shoulders so it's (laughs) there we go
1: um One thing about the the whole NPRM is there's a presumption that there will be cost savings from addressing the individual access right to copies, but that it may increase up to 25% of the, and this is where they give their first sample, of the estimated 615,000 such requests. So they think that's all the requests that we're talking about, 615,000. I would guess that any one ROI company does more than that in a year. And SIOX has already said tens of millions. So where they got the 615, I don't know. But regardless, they used that number and then they said that it may increase because they love to do metrics like this. It may increase the amount of labor by two minutes. So they're thinking two minutes times 615,000 spread across the whole country. Well, okay, that's not much. Well, it's a lot. <laughs> it's first of all, six fifteen is ridiculous. Increasing it only by two minutes is ridiculous because we're just we're barely into talking about this. So I'm going to speed up a little bit. Um, about the fees, they said that fee schedules have to be posted and estimates have to be given. Anyone who's done this work before knows that to provide a page count of how many pages of records you actually have, which is directly correlated to the price, means you have to do all the work first. You can't just look at a chart and go, that looks like about a hundred pages. You have to count them out. And then you can't just count pages because you can only send out what is minimally necessary to respond to the request. If it's a patient request, that is indeed easier because you don't have to worry about the authorization and what it may limit. But in every other request, They may say all records since 2019, or even harder, all records pertaining to the car accident and the subsequent back surgery. So every page really does have to be looked at and they've never understood that uh, and apparently they still don't. Um, We have a very strong position that no third party should receive the individual's free copy or below cost copy. And that's why BAA's labor processes have evolved the way they have given remote work, given electronic records. We still cannot simply hit a button and pull up a chart like it's stored in a word file. So the more we make that point to the government, the better off we'll be. Uh, It does say too that, and this, this is something I thought in here was pretty odd, but I think a lot of it's odd. That other types of records that are sent, paper, microfilm, radiology, whatever, if it's not in an EHR, and those requests that are pursuant to an authorization will be permitted to be fulfilled in charge state rates, but not required to be. So we know that there are millions of hybrid records, which is just those stored in two or more formats. Sometimes it requires two different requests or splitting the request at the provider's level, one for electronic records and another process for the remainder of records. So today each hybrid record is typically built on the same invoice. But if they were made to be separate requests such as they are proposing, a distinction like that may require two invoices for the hybrid record because it's coming from two different sources or it's, different dates of service or different medical conditions and it's just going to cause chaos it's going to be another case where attorneys can try to do this by the book and they end up screwing it up and when they do we have to tell them that. And they don't get the records on time or they don't get them for the rate that they thought they would so it's just another thing Um, they also said the fee schedule would have to provide itemized charges for Labor's supply i'm sorry Labor supplies, and postage. So to itemize what each one of those costs, first of all, you may have different types of labor. Secondly, why are we talking about costs? Because we're not going to charge the attorney costs. We're going to charge them according to the state law. So again, they're confusing the issue and not not making it distinctive. Um, They always talk about comments about how to direct the transmission of copies to a third party, and they think that to allow doing that would transfer costs from covered entities to individuals of 43 million. Again, all their numbers are bogus. I don't know where they got them. It's not in anything I've ever read about HIPAA. I'm assuming it's in some of these requests that attorneys are complaining about, um, and they just accepted that at face value, but we don't really know what they mean by some of those costs. Then my next pet peeve here is verbal requests. They think that patients should be allowed to request their records by phone. Now they also say that in producing these requests, you can't do what is called in the Cures Act, information blocking. So my questions are, If records are allowed to be requested verbally, where's our guidance on what kind of identity confirmation is allowed? Are we gonna be required to do voice identity like some financial institutions are doing? Are we gonna have to have a voice record on file at the provider's office that was collected from that person in person? Because if these requirements are not strong enough, we know that some attorneys will call up, pretend to be the patient, as they now pretend to be for the written access.
2: Absolutely. So
1: I I think that is a
2: a huge problem. Sue, what do you think about it? I think absolutely it's a huge problem because even being able to get, there's a few different things we can do to identify, but right now we know, and I have personally caught attorneys calling and pretending to be the patient We even have, though, at least when they fake a a signature on there and the patients know nothing about it, we now have documentation for that. Mm -hmm. How long do we have to save the voice request? Where do we save the voice request? There are so many things that go along with that that, I mean... Right now we do some things that the patient calls to confirm and, but that's making sure that we're sending the records to the patient, to the address that's currently in the medical record, but we're still talking about third-party requests mm-hmm. and that's going to be a huge issue. How do we do that? You're absolutely right. The, the chances for abuse are astronomical, even compared to what's already happening.
1: Got to mention the chances for a, somebody to make a mistake that was completely unintentional. I mean, at what point do we draw the line and say, you know, Jan is a 90-year-old woman and it sounded like a 20-year-old woman on the phone. Well, who are we to make that judgment? So it's just, I can't imagine how that's ever going to work. Hopefully they can't either and they will withdraw that that section. But the next one is equally problematic. It. HIPAA states in itself from the year 2000 draft that it will preempt state laws or any other laws to the extent that they're about the same subject matter. Okay, so we have hundreds of state laws around the country that specifically talk about other kinds of records and rates for them. Easily I can point out workers' compensation, disability. Okay. so. Is HIPAA now, the new HIPAA, going to replace all those? Because I did a little study when this came out. I pulled information on the fees allowed by states and the average number of state pricing laws alone with which we must comply. I chose 13 random states, random sizes, trying to cover the gamut and the number of laws that each one has on the topic. So it was the number of state laws for these 13 states, 15, 18, 14, 11, 12, 10, 15, 17, 18, 25, 15, 14, 13. So those states had an average had a combined 100, 197 laws about medical record fees. The states averaged more than 15.1 laws per state, and these numbers are representative of all the other states as well. So how are we supposed to deal with that? What government agency or who and with what rules are we supposed to follow with the, in my opinion, inevitable conclusion that will result if suddenly all those laws are preempted? Now, first of all, I think the state legislatures are not gonna like it. They pushed to get these laws passed to begin with. So is each state gonna be able to do something? Is OCR going to do something? Does this violate any federal law about state rights? And to what extent will the state laws be deemed upheld by the federal rule? So all of a sudden, state legislatures, state regulatory agencies may suddenly discover that these laws, and a lot of these states update those laws every year, have been overridden with no input from the states. So I realize this is mainly a legal argument, but you guys are the ones having to deal with this. So think hard and long when this comes around so that we can come up with a a good way to ask the federal government that maybe will be answered for my question here, I hope, um, how we're supposed to preempt certain laws and which ones we're not supposed to preempt. They even in one section cited, quote, state law, commenting that state law is deemed relevant, but mostly preempted. So I asked them in some comments that I did, For a citation to the specific state laws they used in in those comments to determine the figures in their chart. Because we know for total, I said 195 for those 13 states, there are more than 700 state laws pricing medical records. So it's very misleading to list estimated allowable fees for a 200-page hybrid record under state law without saying which state. We don't know if they were used, if they were averaged, or why those laws were chosen to begin with. What do you think,
2: Sue? Totally agree with you. And I mean, we've had struggles over the years, anyway, with you know which one is more patient. You know, you may have some state laws that take away patient rights, all those kind of things. But um, what uh, I wanted to get without representation somehow in here, but. Correct. Being able to, when you're an HIM person and you've got state laws being thrown at you and you've got federal laws being thrown at you and nothing is clear and concise, it gets really confusing for the people that are now going to be held responsible to do this in a department that already doesn't make any money. That's a non, uh, you know, and now it's going to cost even more and hospitals don't really like uh, departments that are not making money for them so and don't always necessarily understand what they even do just throwing that out as a second part with all of this stuff coming out and sometimes you're going to be spending half your time
0: figuring out which rule you're supposed to follow exactly so so, so you have him today right so what what are you doing with release of information today and then you have the potential future, right? So, what do you do in between this time, or, or what suggestions do you have for H I M folk between this in this in between time, uh, when you have one foot in two boats? What should they be doing to, I guess, learn and then prepare, and um, you know, just any any thoughts on that?
1: Well, retirement not... is still an option. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yep.
0: Well, if you like working in healthcare and HIM, and you're feeling that you want to stick with it, and you're um, in your 20s thinking, and 30s, but what other, um, you know, because actually this is a this is an exciting time uh, to see where you can take uh, and help laws being. Um, I guess crafted, right? Because this is you—you you have input at this po- moment. But then there seems to be um, a, a different reality because wherever you start, the problem is that the lawmakers seem to be starting on a different uh, plane. So if yeah. your starting point and your information is incorrect or skewed, I should say, then you're, your your you know that whole thing about you know I've said it before, you know three blind men. Describing an elephant depends on where you start and they're starting maybe at the tail, you know, the lawmakers when they really, you know, should step back and look at the whole darn elephant. But I guess I'll start with you, Sue. And then maybe you, Jan, you know what, what would advice do you give to uh, folks HIM? and then also you know practices because this is going to affect them as well. if you, you may not be associated with the health system and you may not have an HIM director, but you're going to be affected by these um, rules. What, what should they do? Jan? Sue. I'll start with Sue. (laughs) Ann already said her thoughts. We'll get back. She she likes switching our names. Um, So first of all, I'm going to say
2: that it's so funny that you talk about retirement when I remember so many people when ICD-10 was going to be put in place for coding. Mm -hmm. And all these people are like, oh, no, 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 no. But let me throw out the one thing that's different about this. And that I think this is more frustrating is ICD-10 was a new coding system that was used in most of the other developed countries for many years before we adopted it. And it was a date that we were going to go from here to here and you could do your training and everything was 98% black and white. Life was good. It was a change but we knew what it was, it had already been tried, everybody understood the full concepts of it, but yet the HIM department freaked out about it. But everybody understood what it was in the C-suite as well because they knew that that impacted payment. So they were looking at what the, what's the change going to be for implementing ICD-10 in terms of the revenue coming back to the hospital. So this is where I would say that the HIM people need to think along those same concepts and make sure that the C-suite, so it's not just HIM people fighting this, but that the C-suite understands the impact of what the cost is going to be to the organizations, not only to the hospitals who tend to have people that are more highly trained in it and they understand it and they know how to push back from for requests that are not appropriate versus your physician offices that if they're doing it individually, you don't often have people trained and they're throwing stuff out because they're intimidated by the request. They get a little rule that says, here's only what you can charge me and you need to send this to me 17 times. So what, what I don't think that the C-suite understands is it's not just about Losing money on sending requests, it's also increasing your risk of inappropriate information being sent out that should not be sent out. Possible breaches of information. That can be a lot of money between fines and lawsuits and that kind of stuff. If you have people that don't understand what they're supposed to be doing and they're releasing stuff because somebody called and said, hey, can you send me these three people's records? I'm that person. (laughs) Sorry, that's just a stupid exaggeration. But my point is, is that if you have people that aren't trained, what what I don't think the C-suite completely understands is the risk that is around that. Identity theft, a whole bunch of other things that play a part in that. So make sure you talk to your C-suite. Make sure that you're looking at the actual or get somebody's interpretation that you know you can trust from AHIMA, from JAN, from different people that you know, understand and make sure that I will also throw out that there's a problem is if your system, your process is not, in, if your process is inconsistent. So if you have one person that releases in this way and another person who won't, you better be looking at that. So those are just a couple of tips I have. Just a couple. Just a couple.
1: Yeah, and I think the first thing there is, once we get the final rule, there will be typically a 90-day implementation period. So you'll have that 90 days to, first of all, have the rule read and interpreted, but secondly, to figure out how to change your processes because there's no question, some of this is gonna make it to the final rule. So you need to have, and I know facilities hate to have to do this, but if you can get one of your inside counsel to look at it, they will understand, hopefully, not only the revenue impact to the facility, but also the work requirements. Because my take on it is you're probably going to have to have more staff. So you're going to go from a cost center to more of a cost center. And that's not going to be well uh, accepted just based on your recommendation or what you may think. And, you know, if, if it, If you wait till right at the end before it takes effect and then say, oh, I forgot, I'm going to need two more people. Well, as you know, that's not enough time to get two more people. So if you can get somebody up front to interpret it, because they're never clear. And I mean, we were interpreting HIPAA for years. And then as the technology changed, certain other things were able to change as well. So um, two more quick topics that I want to talk about on this. One is they ask for input on billing records. They wanted to know if those should be included in the definition of medical records. Our opinion is no, they should not. They should be specifically requested and not assumed to be included with every request for one reason being that billing records are often kept in the business office. If you have a campus setting of a facility, the business records are the business rec- billing records may not be housed at the same location. They may be in a different computer system, maybe down the block, another part of town or another state. I mean, some of the huge hospital systems have all their billing centralized. So just keep in mind if that passes and they implement billing records being included with every medical record, that's also gonna complicate things and increase costs.
2: And And in a physician office, it's very common even in the big ones that they hire a billing service over here and it's completely separate and owned by somebody else. So yeah.
1: Yeah. The last thing is about HIPAA authorizations. We all know that a lot of times requesters write their own authorizations and they prepare it and then their client, who is the patient, sign it or in some cases not sign it. They'll have the the lawyer's office do it. But it is impossible To have one authorization that contains HHS's language. It's not even today possible to get most of the things we would like to have on an authorization, but certainly if every attorney's office in the country writes their own authorization, it's not going to contain all the language that was in this new law that should be contained, such as um, that an authorization must state that a provider is being reimbursed. Well, attorneys don't care. They, they don't want providers to be reimbursed. They think it's free and they think it should come with having billed the insurance company or the patient for the service that was provided. So they have no interest in making sure their authorization is right. And they may latch onto this and love the fact that it said providers are being reimbursed because they can then sue and say, why are you profiting from my client in this way? So there are a lot of issues around the specified language that they would like to see going forward in authorizations, but that's one thing that I feel sure will that the authorizations will in some way change.
0: So I think we got a lot of good information here, and um, I'm going to take a lot of this data that we've chatted about, and you know, try to um, get it on paper, um, so this way we can share some some key points as well. So. Jan, thank you, thank you, thank you for um, joining Sue and me uh, for talking about PHI. I think this is something that folks, you know, HIPAA has always been like you were saying, you were interpreting it for years and it's been around for years. And here we go, we've got to interpret it some more. So we're going to just keep putting out information and sharing information about this. And, you know, if folks need to connect with you, Jan, if they want to learn or if you um, have your services available, where do they go to uh, connect with you?
1: Um, The best thing would be to email me personally. And my email address is Jan, middle initial, P like pod, m c d for mcdavid at gmail.com so jan p mcd at gmail
0: all right well thanks again thanks sue thanks jan and um, until next time thanks for joining us for another great episode of talking about phi to hear past episodes or to leave comments or learn more Visit us at www.cvstrategicmarketing.com. Until next time.